Happy Sabbath to everybody. Um, I want to welcome everybody, <clears throat> the regular individuals that attend here. I see some familiar faces that I've known, I've met throughout the years, and I see some other faces that we don't normally see here. So I just want to welcome everybody on behalf of the Brooklyn Seventh-day Adventist Church. And, uh, you know, when I think of this church, I think of something special. Um, I think of something, you know, that maybe sometimes we miss out on in life. Some of us maybe don't have that close relationship with family, but we can come here and experience that family. Some of us could look up to one another. Maybe we could look at one another as a brother or sister in Christ. Some of us we may look to as an aunt or uncle or a, a, a distant cousin, distant relative, or even a, a grandparent. We may look to one another in those eyes. First uh, John 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we all are. We're born of earthly parents, but we have the same Heavenly Father. And we come here on one accord with one purpose, and that is to praise and give honor to our Lord and Maker. Matthew 12, Jesus asks a question. He says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? He's asking his disciples and the people listening to him. He points towards his disciples and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And that is what I, I think of when I, when I come to this church. And, you know, I, I look at these flowers. I, I, you know, I think how beautiful these flowers are in the setup. And you get a different perspective of, from up here. Um, I feel like I'm very little in the eyes of God. And, and somebody somewhere along the way felt I was skilled enough to come up here and speak. And, and so I'm grateful for that to come before you. Um, I don't take this lightly. Today we're going to be talking about the story from Gethsemane to Calvary. Before I do that, though, uh, before I go any further, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this place of worship. We thank you that we could come here before you and give you honor and praise. I ask for the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit to be here with me and my brothers and sisters in Christ, our family. I pray for your holy angels to come and dwell with us that they might be here to comfort us and give us strength for the journey that we will walk in the, in the days ahead. Lord, I ask you would anoint my lips and you would anoint the ears of those who hear this, anoint their hearts and their minds, that they would be touched today. I pray that we would receive an outpouring of the Holy Spirit today. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if there's one life to study or one life to model, that would be Christ's. Amen? Amen? And there's no other biography, no greater biography. You know, A&E has these biographies where you can watch the life of, of an individual, but there's no greater biography to study than the life of Christ. Amen. And in describing his earthly mission, um, Jesus states that he was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. He was sent to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who were oppressed. This was Jesus' work. From the cradle to the cross, that was the work of Christ. And we could look at the story of Jesus, and we could, we could read about his, his birth, the virgin birth. We can read about his baptism at the Jordan. We can read about his teachings, teaching the model of prayer, teaching to build upon the rock. And he anoints 12 disciples, 
He goes about doing good. He teaches in parables. And ultimately, he puts down his life. He lays down his life for you and I. This was his work. He went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed by the devil. In fact, when Jesus was living on this earth, there were whole villages that he would go through. And there was not a moan of sickness. When he would go through a village, there was no sickness left in some of these villages. Love, mercy, and compassion were revealed in every act of his life. And his heart went out in tender sympathy to the children of men. He took our nature that he might reach our wants. And the poorest and the humblest were not afraid to come to Jesus. It's a humble heart that comes to Christ. Even little children loved to climb up on his lap and gaze into his face. Now, Jesus did not suppress one word of truth. He always uttered everything he did in love. He did not censor human weakness. He never gave needless pain to a sensitive soul. He spoke the truth, but he always did it in love. He denounced hypocrisy, unbelief, and iniquity. However, tears were in his voice as he uttered his scathing rebukes. He wept over Jerusalem, the city he loved, which refused to receive him, the way, the truth, and the life. He came unto his own, and his own would not receive him. I wonder if it would be any different at the end of time. Are we ready to receive him when he comes? His life was one of thoughtful care and self-denial for others. Every soul was precious in his eyes, and in all souls he saw fallen men and women, which it was his mission to save. And after three and a half years of ministry on earth, as Jesus' ministry was coming to a close, in his great intercessory prayer in the book of John, chapter 17, he said, I have glorified you on earth. I have, I have finished the work which you had given me to do. The entire purpose of Jesus' life led to the climax of the cross. Everything he did was about the salvation of humanity for you and I. Throughout his life, he was focused on his redemptive mission, whatever the cost, whether it be physical, mental, or emotional pain. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, left the glory of heaven, came to this earth as an infant, grew in wisdom and stature, went about healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, hope to the hopeless, and he would even raise the dead on several occasions. Do you believe in that power? Because some of us won't, will not be here, and some of us maybe one day will go to the grave. Some of us may live through the end of time. Do you believe in that power, that no matter what happens in our life, God has the power to raise us up in the last days, that we could all be reunited? And we won't be here in these pews. We will be surrounding the king of the universe. And we will have the holy angels with them. Every Sabbath, we will come together and praise and honor and worship our Creator. He was willing to lay down his life so that we can be redeemed from the curse of sin. And I, I have to venture that not one of us have arrived. I don't believe there's anybody here that can say, I finally arrived. I'm okay. Christ has made me, you know, complete. And, and I, I don't believe that. I believe there is a work to be done in each and every individual here today, including myself. During his life, Jesus was always determined to do the will of the Father, and that is what our life should be about. We should be determined to do the will of our Father, not our own will, not what somebody else tells us, but what God's plan is for our life, whatever that ministry is. It was said in the book of Psalms, I believe this was the words of Jesus, he says, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. 
Yea, thy law is within my heart. His entire life was dedicated to revealing the Father's character of love. And Jesus knew that by giving his life as a ransom, he would save the entire human family from the degradation of sin and death. To do that, Jesus had to face the agony of crucifixion and bear the weight of the sins of the entire world upon his shoulders. And as I look out at everybody here, I think about my sins, I think about all the sins we may have committed in our lives. I think of the city of Brooklyn, Strongville, Parma, Cleveland, Ohio, Florida, California, Texas, across the shores into other countries, you name it. All the people that have ever existed throughout eternity, Christ will have held their burdens on his shoulders. And in his final hour, for the first time, he felt the separation of his father's presence. Every act of his life, everywhere he went and all the work that he did, he always had the glory of the father around him. He always had the father's presence. But as he approached Gethsemane, suddenly something was changing in his life. He began to feel that separation that you and I feel that sometimes we don't even recognize. And as Jesus hung on that cross, he cried out with a loud voice. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How often does that come from the cry of our souls? And prior to the Gethsemane experience that Jesus had, he led his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto a high mountain, to the Mount of Transfiguration. And there, the Bible declares that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light, that light that was being reflected from him. The Father glorified him, preparing him for something. And there, in the presence of Jesus and the disciples, was Moses, and there was Elijah. Moses, who had gone to the grave, who had tasted death, who was resurrected, would represent those of us who may pass away, who may not actually be alive at the second coming. And there was Elijah. Elijah representing those of us who would have to face the final trials here in earth's history. He was translated to heaven and never saw death. That would represent those at the end of time who would go through that trial. You see, the Father was not only giving Jesus the assurance of his sonship, he was giving Jesus the assurance that his sacrifice would not be in vain. The Father wanted to make sure his Son knew everything was going to be okay. Isn't that what we look for? We want to be comforted by our parents. As children, we want to make sure everything is okay. And then we grow up into this wicked world and we realize, man, everything's not, it's really not okay. Something is drastically wrong. The Garden of Gethsemane lies at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And there quite often, Jesus would go with his disciples to talk with them and to teach, to pray, to meditate, and even when he needed rest. He visited the garden many times before. It wasn't anything new to him. However, this time that he visited the garden, this night would be totally different for Jesus because this would be his final night. And as Jesus and his disciples made their way to the garden, suddenly his, his heart became heavy. A burden began to come upon him. And his disciples noticed a change in him, something they had never seen before. They'd seen their Savior confident, full of love and compassion, and suddenly there was a change. There was a visible change. His heart became heavy because he began to become weighed down with the sins of the world. 
Now, he voluntarily accepted that weight for you and I. But that very weight threatened to crush out his life. The Bible declares in the book of Isaiah, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. For the penalty of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life. And I think of that. What love, what humility, what a sacrifice, and what a Savior. In the book of Matthew, if you'd like to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 26, I'm going to be going back there. We're going to read Matthew chapter 26, and I'm going to start in verse 36. We'll read the story of Gethsemane. And it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Now Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray. To watch literally means to stay awake. You can't watch if you're sleeping. But here what Christ was saying was to remain awake for a purpose. And this purpose was that Jesus wanted the comfort of his disciples in his final moment. And they were not there for him. You see, the disciples put more trust in themselves and they did not look to Christ. Watching and praying is a theme of the Bible. Many times we read the words to watch and pray. And to watch and pray in the Greek language actually means to keep away. And you're going to catch this. It means be alert, keep one's eyes open, be vigilant. Because our adversary, the devil, goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. He wants to pick us off. He wants to take our faith from us. To put doubt in our hearts and our minds that the power of Christ cannot help us overcome sin. The power of Christ will not be there to resurrect us. Just as he tempted Jesus in his hour of temptation, the enemies of soul was pressing in so that Christ would give up his mission. But I say glory to God that Christ did not give up. I, I ask and, and I request the strength for Christ to be within us so that no matter what we go through, we would be able to stand no matter what trial there is. You see, the Bible declared long ago that he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And I have to ask a tough question, and I, I ask this of myself. Are we asleep sometimes like the disciples? 
Are we watching and praying, paying attention to what is going on in this world? Not that we obsess about it, but that we recognize the signs of the times. You know, when I think of this story of the Garden of Gethsemane, I think about the story of the ten virgins, and we've heard this many times before. The virgins all had something. They had a lamp. Now that lamp, we know that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Bible also says that the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Reproof of instructions are a way of life. Some of them had the Holy Spirit. They all had Christ's righteousness. They all kept the commandments. They all had the spirit of prophecy. They all had the word of God. But some of them, their eyes became heavy. Actually, all of their eyes became heavy. And they fell asleep, just like the disciples did. And at the time when the crisis came, they all rose and woke up. As if to say, what's going on? Now it's time to get ready. Let us hurry. And I just ask that we watch and pray that we don't fall into that same category. In Romans chapter 13, it says, And do this knowing the time that is now. It is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day it is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. We're told to watch and pray. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, we're told the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Revelation 3.10 says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. I also think about with everything happening in our world, the Bible says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And if you're paying attention, liberties are subtly being taken away during this crisis. And so I just encourage us that we watch and pray. And I just ask the question also, are we prepared for our own personal hour of Gethsemane, whatever that might be for you and I? I don't know what that's going to be. And I also would ask, what if all the ministry you've ever done, what if you've worked on somebody, you've tried to help somebody see Christ, you've worked for them, you've, you've, you've prayed for them, you've tried to study with them, you've encouraged them, but what if the only thing that would actually save that person was you laying down your life? What if the fact that you would go to the grave would actually put a seed into that individual's heart that would spring up and bring forth fruit that they might actually want to follow Christ because of what you did, because you laid your life down. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. That, that's what happened to me when I was younger. I give a little bit of a testimony here. When I was a young child, I grew up in a family um, that went to, the, went to church as a Christian family. My grandparents, uh, my grandmother was a Bible reading prayer warrior and my grandfather was, had the humble, loving spirit of Christ. And you could just feel it in them. You could just sense it. When you went to their house, you knew that you were in the presence of God. But when their lives passed away, when they went to the grave, something happened in me. Something stirred up in me and says, Dave, you, you've almost lost your lifeline that you had. Now you have to seek and search on your own. And the, the sad part was, Peter, Peter wasn't converted until after Christ's arrest. 
And in fact, Peter denied him, basically saying, I never knew the man. The pressure was too much. It wasn't until after Christ suffered and Peter saw it, he went back to Gethsemane, and by then it was too late. All the time that he could have spent with Christ then and there was too late. In that final hour when he needed him the most, Peter was not there. I pray that we don't have that same character as Peter. I pray that we just have the Lord search ourselves. And this is for me personally. I'm not saying this to try to condemn anybody. This is for me personally. I'm speaking from my heart. Because every one of us in our lives at some point or another will experience a cup of suffering. And there's different ways we can handle that cup, whatever it is. We can reject the cup. We can refuse to accept what has happened in our lives, and we can become angry at God for giving us the cup. Lord, why have you put me in these circumstances? Why do I have to go through this? Or we could receive the cup with resentment. We can accept defeat and say, you know what, this crisis, this trial is too much. We could become discouraged, and we could just walk away from God. Or we can do what Christ did. We can receive the cup with the assurance that God will not allow us to be tempted above what we can bear, and we can say, Thy will be done with absolute certainty that God will provide strength for our journey, and we can boldly say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When Jesus finished praying, God sent the angel Gabriel to him. The angel wasn't sent to take the cup away from Christ. The angel was sent to strengthen him to drink that cup, to go through the trial. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweat great drops of blood. Now Jesus comes to his disciples, and he says with sorrow in his voice, he says, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus was betrayed in that hour. His hour had come, and his death was near. And Judas, one of his very own disciples, was about to betray him. You know, I have to say the deepest pain comes when someone you love and have put your trust and faith in, you feel a betrayal. And I'm just going to be honest, and I'm sure we've all been through this. Sometimes it's with uh, friends, family, co-workers. It, it's easy with strangers that we don't know. We can brush it off and walk away. But sometimes when it happens, it hurts so much. Sometimes it's even within the church. We tend to attack one another. Now, I want to read, go back to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. And we're going to read in verse 47. The word of God says, And while he was speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now other Gospels say that Jesus responded by saying, Judas, you betray me with a kiss? Here in verse 50, Jesus says, Friends, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly Peter, one of those who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? 
just a footnote, that's 72,000 angels. That's half of 144,000. That's a powerful army. If God could send Christ those angels, he could send them to his people. He goes on to say, How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then sadly, this ends by saying, Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. His disciples left him when he needed them the most. And in the 18th chapter of the book of John, we can read about the same story. And it says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And then it says, They drew back and fell to the ground. The very same angel that came to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the same angel that rolled away the stone, the same angel that was there to take Jesus to heaven, Gabriel, stepped between Christ and the crowd and knocked the crowd to the ground. One angel did that. And at that moment, the disciples forsook him. And just as Jesus had declared earlier, he said, Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. You know, I think about that in in our context today with what we have going on in the world and what trials or crisis we may have to face. Second Timothy says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. First John 4, 4 says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Do you believe that? John 16 says, These things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What will we do when crisis comes our way? Will we cling to Jesus? When the storms in our lives are raging and the waters seem to be coming into our boat, will we forsake him and trust in our own strength? Or will we follow the Lamb wherever he goes? Because the Bible says after Gethsemane, as Jesus was taken away, that Peter followed at a distance. Do we follow Jesus at a distance sometimes? Are we guilty of that? Sometimes when Jesus goes, he wants us to go down this path, do we back away and say, ah, I don't want to go down that path. That, that seems like too much of a struggle for me. But he's saying, you know, Dave, there's growth. There's maturity on this path. Keep going down this path, Dave. Stay on this path with me. Sometimes maybe we want to go to the left to, to maybe watch our favorite program on TV that has, has no bearing on our eternal salvation. Or maybe we'll want to partake of some sin in the world that maybe is still attractive to us. Or maybe we rush ahead of Christ and we say, no, no, not your will, my will, God. Or do we walk with Christ step by step every path of the way, no matter what the cost You see, we were talking a little bit about this this morning in Sabbath school, and I'm glad it was brought up. I'll repeat it. We are told that in crisis, character is revealed. And if you ever want to know what you're made of, just watch yourself when you're faced with some circumstances that are very uncomfortable to you. God will show you what needs to be worked on. There's no doubt about that. You see, Gethsemane was the beginning of the end for our Lord. And as he was taken from Gethsemane, he was hurried along the way by an unruly mob. And the hardened Jewish leaders were there along with him. 
with the rugged Roman soldiers. They all led him to the court of Caiaphas. And there they took Christ and they mocked him. They ridiculed him. They placed a crown of thorns upon his head and pressed him into his skull as blood began to pour down his face. But that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough. They blindfolded our Savior. And they struck him and said, prophesy who hit you, Messiah. They laughed at him. And when the religious leaders asked him if he was the son of God, little did they realize it was actually them that day were facing judgment. For God in the heavenly courts took record of every event, every account that took place that day. He was then taken to face the farce of a trial in Pilate's judgment hall. He was interrogated and mocked in Herod's palace, whipped with a cat of nine tails 39 times and sentenced to die before Pilate, the religious leaders, and an angry mom. You ask the question, why 39 times? Why such an odd number? Why not 40? You see, in in the times of the Roman Empire, if if they found a criminal and he was guilty of uh, a crime and he was to be punished by death, they would whip him 40 times, because 99.9% of the time, if you were lashed with a cat of nine tails that have these sharp stones in them, your life would most likely expire. It was very rare for a person, which is where we get the term to be beaten within an inch of your life. And that's what they did to our Savior. And that wasn't enough. After that, he staggered beneath the agonizing load of the cross and was crucified on a Roman stake. From Gethsemane, his pathway led to mockery, ridicule, denial, and rejection. It led to excruciating pain, mental agony, spiritual torment, and ultimately his death on the cross of Calvary. Now I ask, why would he do this? Why would Christ do this? Why would Jesus, who had the glory of heaven, why would he put down his royal crown, come to our world, be born as a baby, be tempted in all things just as we are, and then face what seems to human wisdom such a horrible ordeal, why would he do this? Why would the author and finisher of our faith, the Bible declares, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame? What kind of joy is that for someone to suffer? And I'll tell you exactly what joy there was for him because he looked down through the ages and he saw a family of believers that would come together at a certain point in earth's history. He did it for you and I. You know, when I first became a Christian, I had the privilege of practicing music and singing music with some people. I'm I'm grateful that I was put in that position, and I was able to sharpen some of my talents that I didn't even know I had. But it's all glory to God. And there was a song I remember, a gentleman by the name of David Keyes that wrote a song called Given, and it's stuck in my heart ever since. And I just want to share it. It's a short song, but I just want to share it with you. It goes like this. He says, Given power, you turned it down. Given praise, you walked away. And given thrones, you refused the crown. But given me, you took my cross. Given how you set me free. And given that... You made me new and given what you have done for me. I give my all, my Lord, to you. 
I'm going to read parts of Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Finish off with verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You know, before Jesus came to our world, every step that he would take was laid out before him. From the manger to the cross, Jesus saw it all. And he chose, in Gethsemane, he chose, in Gethsemane, he saw the helplessness of mankind. He saw the power of sin. He saw the grief and sorrow of a doomed world rise up before him. He beheld our impending fate, eternal separation from God, for that is why he came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that so whoever believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In Gethsemane, his decision was made. He chose to save us at any cost to himself. He accepted his baptism of blood as he tread the path to Calvary, so that we can live with him in eternity forever. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing, I mean nothing, except our loved ones that is important enough to hold on to in life. It's time, I believe, that we should just let everything go for the sake of Christ. Something's changing in our world, and I'm not bringing you this message to bring fear or anything. There is something happening, and it's high time we as Christians, as believers in Christ, stand up to bring glory and honor to his name. And before we close, friends, I just want to speak to your heart, frankly, as God has spoken to mine. I don't know your life. I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know the tragedies, the shame, the regret, or the valleys you've been through, or what we might go through together, or even the habits or addictions that you may struggle with. You don't know what I have to deal with or my relationship with Christ. But there is one thing for sure, and that is for certain. There is a Savior who is ready and waiting to forgive you, to cleanse you and save you from all your struggles and prepare you for whatever comes your way. And if you'd like to submit these struggles together with me and lay them down at Calvary, then let's just pray this together. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this blessed Sabbath day. I want to thank you for the family of God who has come here. 
Lord, we all have our trials and our struggles. We have regret, we have shame, we have tragedy in our life. But Father, we want to lay that down at Calvary so that we could be rightfully molded and fitted for your work, for your ministry, that we could be made wholly thine for your kingdom and also, Father, to bring others into your kingdom. I pray you would touch our hearts this day and as we go our journey, I ask that you would walk side by side continually impressing us with the power of your Holy Spirit and that your holy angels continue to dwell with us daily. Lord, let all of our eyes look to the cross of Calvary and that great sacrifice that you committed for our sakes and that may we rejoice one day in heaven when all is said and done, we can praise you in the heavenly courts. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.